This episode is brought to you by Audible. As you know, Audible is the Internet's leading provider of audiobooks, with over 100,000 titles to choose from. This time, I would like to recommend Paris, 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, by Margaret McMillan. This is the story of six months in Paris that changed the world. At the close of World War I, between January and July of 1919, delegates from around the world converged on Paris to try to figure out what to do to stop any future war. Uh, new countries were created, old empires were dissolved, and for six months, everybody focused on Paris. It's an amazing story, and you get the real behind-the-scenes of the maneuverings going on, the trouble, the tension between the Allied leaders about what the president wanted versus the prime minister versus of the premier of France. It's an amazing story and it really does set up a lot of things. So what Germany was angry about will make a lot more sense. It's an amazing read. This book has won awards. I can't remember the name of the award right now, but um, it's an amazing book and it's well-written and it's well-read and I think you'll enjoy it very much. And thank you for listening to A History of World War II, Episode 39, The Dictator That Wasn't. The Great War, as far as Hitler was concerned, was over. Resting uncomfortably in a military hospital in Payswalk, Pomerania, his sight was gone, and with it, any hope of escaping a future just as miserable as his past. But in time, his sight would be restored, and in return, he would restore hope to Germany. The war being what it was, the doctors had plenty of experience working with soldiers who had lost their sight due to chlorine gas, and under their treatment, the burning sensation behind his eyes soon disappeared. But after a week, he could still only make out dim shapes. Despite this partial recovery, and his doctors telling him not to worry, Hitler was convinced his sight would not improve beyond this. In this state, he would never be able to draw again, and would have no way of earning a living. He was probably told that he was exposed to the most deadly gas used in the war, and it was a miracle that he was alive and only worrying about his sight. Still, there was damage of the mind. The nurses and doctors found him sometimes severely depressed, beyond pulling himself together, and simply weeping in a corner. When he was able to think of something other than his bleak future, it was of Germany, or rather, Germany's bleak future. Then his depression would return. Their defeat seemed total, and he could only think of all those dead young men, their deaths meaningless as Germany succumbed to defeat. On November 10th, the Kaiser left Germany, and the monarchy was finished. As much as Hitler blamed the Kaiser for the defeat, it was still another shameful blow for the proud Germans. Despite his depression and Germany's bleak outlook, his sight improved, and by November 21st, he was able to see well enough to leave the hospital. He headed for Munich and the barracks of the List Regiment. Upon his arrival, he heard that a Bavarian Socialist Republic had been set up by a Jewish intellectual named Kurt Eisner. Although accused of being a Bolshevik worker from Moscow, Eisner was simply a well-meaning German citizen trying to bring order to his country. Hitler later claimed that he agitated against this and other Jewish leaders, but there are no records to prove this. The truth is, he was still much too weak for any undertaking. He needed rest and time to recover. Luckily, he was given the opportunity for just that. Hitler and his only surviving friend from the war, Schmidt, were asked if they wanted a temporary assignment. Times being what they were, they quickly said yes. They soon found themselves at the front gate of a prisoner of war camp, guarding the entrance. The work was boring, as arrangements were being made to send the prisoners home, but still, it was the quiet that Hitler needed, and the pay even more. By the end of January 1919, the last of the prisoners were away, and soon after, the two German soldiers were back at the list barracks. Boredom quickly set in, but an officer, favorably disposed to the two men, found another meaningless job for them. Within days of returning to the barracks, they found themselves sitting next to a mountain of gas masks. Their job was to check the masks for usability but since they were all used, they were worthless, regardless of their condition. Still, the job paid three marks a day, and again, times being what they were, they were happy for the work. Hitler would never seriously draw or paint again, but this new job left his evenings open, so he rekindled another passion, the opera. Of course, 
The Munich productions could not compare with those of Vienna, but still, more than not, Hitler would be in attendance and dragging Schmidt along with him. It was these two temporary but relaxed assignments that allowed Adolf lodgings and food while mending. He would later claim that he decided to go into politics while in the hospital, but events to come do not bear this out, and it would be even closer to the truth to say that he stumbled into politics rather than choosing a course. So events and people larger than Hitler marched apace. On February 21, 1919, Kurt Eisner, the Chancellor, was assassinated. Bavaria was made motionless with the funeral and the general strike that followed. During this, Hitler checked gas masks. But this is not too surprising since the army itself and the officers as a whole sat on the fence and simply watched the political events unfold for fear of civil war. This was also partly due to the officers politically leaning to the right and the soldiers politically to the left. So Hitler's lack of involvement was not amazing, but it was he that later claimed to be giving anti-Jewish and pro-German speeches at this time. Soon, a new government sprang up, led by a man named Toller, an independent socialist who happened to be Jewish. Of course, to Hitler, it was as if his worst nightmare was coming true. The Jews were trying to take over the world. With the socialists in charge, it wasn't long before many on the right rose up to fight back. Many of the leaders of these groups were also members of the Tula Society, a violently anti-Semitic group that believed in ruling by an aristocratic elite. Their symbol was a swastika with a dagger and laurel leaves. They were well-funded and organized enough to already have spies in the new government. They were also storing weapons and contacting members of the Freikorps, private armies of the right that were led by army officers. But this new government of Tallers that tried to keep Eisner's vision going fell on April 13, 1919, when a right-wing uprising was put down by armed workers. Obviously, the new left-leaning government could not provide order and stability. With its collapse, the socialist government was replaced by a communist one, which was led by three men. It was called the Bavarian Soviet Republic and had about 20,000 well-armed workers to support it, but few effective officers or mid-level leaders. But the former socialist leader, Toller, was not yet finished. After winning a battle against some right-wing troops blocking his path, he headed for Munich. As he got closer, word came to him that the Bavarian Soviet was near collapse. The common people, afraid to back any one group over another for fear of picking a losing side, would not send food to the city. As the Soviet crumbled, Munich experienced a Red Terror campaign, and some of the members of the Tula Society were placed against a wall and shot. But even with this political disintegration, Toller and his socialists could not make it to Munich in time. Instead, a right-wing army of Freikorps had got there first and executed the communist leaders. In trying to purge the other communists from the government, a reign of white terror was organized and lasted many weeks. People were shot out of hand and beaten to death. Toller was jailed for five years. As the now-ruling Freikorps had been on their way to Munich, some of the men of the List Regiment fired upon them. After taking control of the city, some of the victors came back to the barracks for revenge. The List Regiment was arrested and taken away, but Hitler was recognized by a friend who had him released. In gratitude or for sheer survival, Hitler then fingered a few of the men who had supposedly done the shooting. About nine men of the list were executed by Hitler's word. The army officers, glad that the political right was back in control, rewarded Hitler's betrayal by making him an undercover agent. It was made official by a Captain Meyer of Army Intelligence. Of course, this new recruit could not be trusted to think his own thoughts, so was ordered to sit in on a series of indoctrination classes organized by the army elites. At the end of one of his early classes that spoke of the superior German to the treacherous Jew, one soldier stood up and attacked the premise of the professor's argument. Before Hitler could think, he was on his feet verbally attacking the soldier's stupidity and defending the professor's view that they were in fact the main problem with Germany and civilization today. Hitler consumed with his hatred but also, almost unknowingly, his eloquence did not see his victim leave the room even before his speech was concluded. During his tirade, there had been no thinking, just a coming together of things that Hitler had read, heard, or believed 
and delivered with such a passionate but flawed logic that few doubted his conclusions. If anyone could have stopped him for a moment, they could have pointed out that most of his premises were woefully skewed, but it wouldn't have mattered much. It was how he spoke, not what he said, that captivated the class. When he was finished speaking, exhausted, and coming back down to earth, he found the entire class staring at him, and he realized they were in his hands. He could speak, and his speaking had clearly swayed his audience. He had control over them. They believed in his conviction. If he had asked them to do something at that moment, they probably would have, without thinking. All this he realized instantly. Hitler was asked to speak at the end of each class about the Jewish problem and the worthiness of keeping the German blood pure. Captain Meyer entered Adolf's life again and promoted him to speak at the indoctrination of returning prisoners of war. There were 23 speakers overall, but Hitler was the star. The classes continued through August, and then Hitler returned to the list barracks and resumed his spying. But he would never be the same person again. His reputation was growing as an intellectual on the Jewish problem, and he was asked to write a letter detailing the best way to handle this particular situation. His response was completed and dated on September 16, 1919. It was his first political statement. The letter was long and rambled on how the Jewish people were a race and not a religious community. But the flaw that made them evil to be wiped out was that their gods were money and power. While normal men sought religion, socialism, or democracy, the Jews only wanted money to obtain power, and power to keep everyone else low, and themselves, either openly or behind closed doors, masters of the world. As time went on, his views only became more extreme, and his basis of thought more faltering. Of course, other countries had persecuted their Jewish populations, but at least they tried to give a justification. Hitler's was a coldly applied, methodical approach to their destruction. Of course, only a strong centralized state, organized around a man or a small group of men, could successfully carry out this goal to a conclusion. Hitler ended the letter by saying he reverently hoped to be a part of that group one day. Taking nothing away from his newfound speaking abilities, Hitler found out that when he attacked and blamed the Jews for all of Germany's problems, not only were those in the audience applauding, but so too were the soldiers and their officers. Everyone was looking for someone to blame and focus their fear and anger on. It was obvious to Hitler they were looking for someone to lead. Sometime after September 1919 is probably when Hitler decided to go into politics. But it wasn't him offering himself up to his beloved Germany and its troubled people. It wasn't him sacrificing himself for the greater good. It was simply an avenue had been discovered by him and it led to things he wanted. Power and the freedom from anything like the hard life he had lived thus far. Even if that former life had been made hard by his laziness and lack of maturity. He would go down his newly chosen path, and he would do it ruthlessly. He only cared for his own comfort and needs. Everything else, every one else, was expendable. He started fantasizing about his future again, but this time the fantasies were clear and achievable. So he planned accordingly. He would need to lead a political party and offer up a basic set of political principles. And hadn't he, although unknowingly, already been working on the latter? Yes, he would find or found a party to lead, then one day, the country. On September 12, 1919, Hitler was sent out to spy on one of the many small political parties that sprang up after the war. He had already checked out a few of the parties and knew they would come to nothing. He felt the same about this one. It met in a beer hall in Munich at Sternecherbräu, with about 25 people in attendance. The leader stood and said that the party's goals was for putting Germany on the right foot and finding those responsible for losing the war. The guest speaker was supposed to be Dietrich Eckhart, and clearly many in the audience had been looking forward to his speech. He had all the right qualifications. Jew-hater, journalist, Dulé member, and passionately believed in German purity. But he had gotten sick recently, and a replacement was found. This speaker's credentials were slightly less impressive, and his focus was on another topic. He gave a speech about what he called interest slavery. He was savvy enough to connect his idea to the Jews, but since the main thrust of his speech was about money and figures, the deflated crowd was clearly not receiving what it had come for. 
Hitler did not have a head for business or finance and was quickly bored as well. But then someone rose and asked about the gossip of a union between Bavaria and Austria. If this happened, then Bavaria would be strong enough to leave Prussian dominance behind. As an Austrian, Hitler had a strong opinion on the subject, so he stood and verbally countered the expressed point of view with such passion and quote-unquote facts that the questioner left the room before Hitler was even finished speaking. Again, without meaning to, Hitler had found his voice, his talent, who he was, and who he would be. He finished speaking, and again, the audience was enraptured. As he was leaving, a man named Anton Drexler, the creator of the Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, German Workers' Party, pushed a pamphlet into his hand. Hitler had enjoyed speaking in public again, but considered this evening and these men a waste of time. Still, he had a report to write, and then suddenly feared completing his mission, because he hadn't really paid that much attention. It was then that he remembered the pamphlet and got it out of his coat pocket. He quickly read it sixteen chapters. He read of the Jews, Freemasons, and other exploiters of the German people. It claimed that what was needed was a new world order along the lines of national socialism. It then returned to the Jews and how their influence kept Germany from its greatness, and ended with the hope that someone would come along and confront and remove the Jews from Germany. Hitler had found a kindred spirit in Anton Drexler. Within a few days, Hitler had received an invitation to sit in on a meeting of the executive committee of the German Workers' Party. Their impertinence angered him, but he doubted anything would come of it. Yet, he felt intrigued and was compelled to go. Upon arrival, Hitler was greeted warmly by Drexler and introduced to Karl Herrer, the chairman. The minutes of the last meeting were read out, and then the treasurer announced that the party had just over seven marks. Hitler must have asked himself, what am I doing here? Still, they convinced Hitler to join, and he allowed himself to be convinced. But he stayed aloof. His reason was simple. He had found his vehicle, his party, from which to achieve power, and his first goal was to destroy and rebuild the party in his image. For the next few months, he attended meetings, but didn't officially join until January 1, 1920. He was the 55th member and the 7th member of the executive committee. Soon after, Hitler was introduced to Dietrich Eckhart, the man who was supposed to have spoken at the first meeting Hitler attended. This man would change Hitler's life. He was a man of renown and influence. Simply put, he was rotund, larger than life, loud, opinionated, jovial, and loved to be seen in public, holding forth on one of his favorite subjects of either anti-Semitism, German destiny, or the correctness of the right-wing objectives. Eckhart liked what he saw in Hitler, namely a younger version of himself, and took him under his rather large wing. Hitler returned the admiration, and they talked together endlessly and recommended books to each other. Once they were at ease in each other's company, Eckhart whispered to Hitler that he had written about a coming German savior. He prophesied this savior would be a common soldier with burning eyes who held the strongest conviction for Germany's place in the world. And since he, Eckhart, was an anti-Semite, so was his hero. Their egos could only approve of this friendship. But of a more immediate concern, Eckhart opened up purses and pockets to Adolf. Certainly not his own money, but he knew many wealthy and impressionable people. But even beyond that, Eckhart made sure this young order, who shared his vision, met the right people in Munich. Of course, this meant that he also had to teach Hitler how to dress better and consider his appearance. This improved and cleaned up Hitler was introduced by Eckhart as the longed-promised savior. When not mixing with company, these two men, these two sides of the same coin, could be seen, heads together, talking, talking, talking. But there were differences. While Eckhart would look for justification and add poetry to his arguments, Hitler would not seek out pretty dressings to blunt or cloud his views or goals. To him, the Jewish people were the nearly invisible force throughout history, controlling events. His readings and discussions did not look for truth or to discover anything, but to simply support his cause for ridding Germany of the Jewish influence. Facts and truths were twisted in this relentless, methodical, cold-blooded pursuit of blaming all problems, certainly all of Germany's problems, on these people. So the circle in which this former Austrian vagabond traveled in grew. Anton Drexler 
made sure he met the railway workers and other blue collars, Captain Meyer, the high-ranking officers, and Eckhart, the cream of society. But together they all worked on bringing new recruits into the German Workers' Party. Soon, an Ernst Rom was brought in. As the chief of staff to a military governor, he brought prestige. But since he also helped to create the nationalist and anti-monarchist society, the Iron Fist, his followers were encouraged to join as well. Soon Hitler had come full circle and was recruiting men from his own list regiment. However, the Workers' Party was still one of the many extreme organizations milling about Munich, but it was growing and starting to stand out, and this was mostly due to Hitler's fiery speeches. To anyone who bothered to look around, Hitler was the brightest star within this energetic Workers' Party, and Hitler, never forgetting his real goal, would sometimes sit back and coldly calculate the weaknesses of the men around him. The chairman, Herr, had to go. He was no real threat to Hitler, but offered very little to the party, and so was a dead weight. Drexler, the founder, was important, but still, his power had to be diminished. And lastly, the party was without a program. Something that said, this is what we believe in, something the people could support. Something direct and simple. A 25-point program was soon written by Hitler and Drexler. It went through many forms, but was finished by February 6, 1920. Summing up its main points, it called for a greater Germany with equal rights for those of German blood, that the Versailles Treaty was to be put away and that only citizens could hold office, which meant no Jews. Future non-German immigration would be stopped, and all war profits were to be collected for the people, and all trusts were to be nationalized. Old-age pensions would be increased, and there would be agrarian reform, and land for farming would be taken without compensation. The culture of the people must be organized by the state for its preservation. Is this starting to sound familiar? Assistance to mothers, protecting the young, and enforced physical activities. Strict regulation for the press, and my personal favorite, there would be no lying in politics. And lastly, freedom of religion. And to do all this, a strong centralized state with unconditional authority. With this done, and something concrete to offer the people, Hitler made his first move and appointed himself chief propaganda officer, and no one within the party argued. Hitler was, with this move, the de facto leader. Voting was not needed. Well on his way, Hitler knew that he had to give his political party his full attention, and so left the list barracks, and by the end of March 1920, left his position as political instructor. Now that his time was his own, and he had something to sell the people, and a way to sell it, through his speeches, he focused on enlarging the party. His speeches and ideas brought excitement to Munich, and something to talk about and argue over. He brought the people hope, hope for their lives, and hope for Germany. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors, like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. He decided that the best way to grow the party was not only to give as many speeches as possible, but that his speeches should stir the audience to violence. Hitler firmly believed that a person would remember something easier if it was attached to a strong emotion, such as fear or anger. Now that he was giving speeches regularly, 
He took the time to study the science of speech-making. He tested the echo effects from different parts of a large room and practiced determining the right moment to take off in a speech from an almost mumbling ramble to a hysterical shouting to bring the people up with him out of their seats and to clearly see whatever picture he was drawing for them with his words. He always showed up late for a speech to build up the tension and then suddenly appeared from an unexpected entrance and walked through the people, eyes focused straight ahead with his bodyguards surrounding him. By February 24, 1920, Hitler was ready for his next move, so he took what he had learned and read out the 25-point party program to about 2,000 people for the first time. When that was finished, he wanted the people to remember this speech, so he verbally attacked Berlin as being corrupt, and the starving, frustrated Bavarians applauded. He finished off his speech with the standard attack against the Jews and their influence. The following month saw more political instability around Germany. The people were fearful, but Hitler was inspired. On March 13, 1920, a Dr. Kapp declared himself Chancellor of the German Reich. A group of right-wing Freikorps had chased the current president, chancellor, and his cabinet out of the capital. The army put Kapp in charge, but was really only using him. Few had ever heard of him, but the military needed a civilian in the chair. However, the other European capitals refused to recognize him, and the army officers who led the Freikorps were unsure of what to do when a general strike was called for by the left. News of this putsch reached Munich to general approval, and the local Freikorps, seeing how easy it was, took control of Munich. However, the strike in Berlin ruined Kapp's plans, and he fled after a few days. The frustrated Freikorps left soon after Kapp, but not before inflicting death and violence on the innocent Berliners. As news of a little boy being beat to death in Berlin shocked Germany, Hitler was dispassionately evaluating what Kapp did wrong. Everyone thought of how to take power, but the Freikorps had proved that was the easy part. It was what one did after taking power that mattered. Only by having a plan and being ready to fight to maintain power would guarantee success. Did Cap declare martial law? Did he arrest the troublemakers? Did he shoot the strikers? Take the treasury? No. So no wonder he failed. Hitler also noticed that more than half of the Freikorps had the swastika painted on their helmets. Clearly the right was strong and looking for someone to take the lead. For the next few years, the idea of a possible putsch was never far from Hitler's mind. For the remainder of the year, Hitler kept giving speeches, but from now on, the crowds would always number in the thousands. The barracks and the uniform were truly behind him and replaced with a simple flat and a slightly frayed blue suit, and as always, surrounded by his bodyguards. As the chief speaker, the party was really just a physical manifestation of himself, and now that he had control, changes started to be announced and not voted on. Only he was allowed to introduce or change material for propaganda. He officially made the swastika the party symbol and even designed and determined the very look and dimensions of the armbands soon worn by everyone. To further demonstrate his power and brand the party along the lines he approved of, he changed the name of the party to the National Socialist German Workers' Party. Soon the swastika was on flags, banners, everywhere. But even the party logo did not escape his attention. He would draw it over and over, changing its proportions and angles until he was satisfied. Through his study of people during his speeches, he realized that the look of the party symbol was important. It had to be simple and easy to comprehend. The black swastika within a white circle and a blood-red background caught the eye, but it also had a message. Hitler explained in one speech, the red was for socialism, the white for nationalism, and the swastika was the pure German race dedicated to anti-Semitism. With the popular speeches, money started coming in, but still, Hitler lived simply in a two-bedroom apartment. It had a bed, table, two chairs, and a bookcase. He would live there at that address from 1920 until 1929. By the end of 1920, it was clear to Hitler that his plan was progressing. He had maneuvered things so that he was by now the only thing that mattered within the party. Still, he needed men he could trust to handle the growing responsibilities. But they had to be the right men, power-hungry, dominant, yet passionately devoted to him. 
The first two to enter his circle of trust were Alfred Rosenberg and Rudolf Hess. Rosenberg was a would-be philosopher, yet clever enough, and Hitler used him to make decisions. Hess was looking for something larger than himself to devote his life to, and he decided he had found it. Throughout 1921, a headquarters was set up in a tavern, a common practice at the time, but the location changed continuously as their needs and income increased. By November of 1921, the party had a headquarters with several rooms serving their dues-paying members. The summer of that year, the party even managed to create, organize, and put out a newspaper. It didn't come out with any regularity at first, but within two years, they managed to make it a daily. Then, after acquiring a second-hand American printing press, the paper took on a more professional look. As the party grew, it became obvious to the executive committee that Hitler had no intention of sharing power, so they started resisting him. Hitler recognized this when it happened and had been waiting for it. To show his strength and their weakness, he simply left for Berlin for six weeks. No one could speak like him, excite the people like him, or focus on the tiniest details like him. Predictably, the party suffered while he was away. He returned to Munich on July 11, 1921, to everyone's relief, but he wasn't finished demonstrating his significance to the executive committee yet. To increase the pressure on them, he announced he would be resigning from all party affairs. His plan easily worked. The executive committee asked him to come back to work things out. He replied that of course he would, if he were given dictatorial powers. They quickly said yes, but he still made them grovel, sign a document, vote for him, and then have a meeting on it. Then the whole party had to vote on it. The results of the voting on July 29th were predictable. There were 543 for and one against. He took a victory lap by telling them of his new title, Unserführer, or Our Leader. Later, it would just be Der Führer, the leader. Now that he was firmly in control of his party, it was time to move forward toward an eventual putsch. And that meant violence. Violence now would mean fear and the ability to bluff later when marching on Berlin. On September 14, 1921, Otto Ballerstedt of the Bavarian Monarchist Party was given a speech. It was said he alone could rival Hitler in public speaking and debate. Hitler, and he would do this often in his political life, decided on killing two birds with one stone. Hitler and several others ran onto the stage Ballerstead was speaking from and badly beat him. The cops came, arrested Hitler and his men. Hitler received a three-month sentence, but only served one month. Still, he got his two birds. Ballerstead was out, and the people feared Hitler. Political violence was becoming more common in Munich but that was mostly due to Hitler's tactics and those victims wanting revenge. As events intensified, Hitler created his own private army, and when he had it, it was time to put it to use, beyond just defending his person. They needed to be bloodied. So, on November 4, 1921, when Hitler was giving a speech to an audience of about 2,200 people, he knew there would be hundreds of communists in the audience, and they had a score to settle. Hitler only had about 47 bodyguards with him, but had previously told them to watch the communist members closely when they surged at him to move forward and show no mercy. He spoke for more than an hour, working the crowd up before the communists, unable to take the verbal abuse any longer, made for the stage. The bodyguards were ready and gave a good account of themselves. They fought the communists back for 20 minutes before the melee was broken up. The communists were escorted out by the police and Hitler finished his speech. His men had passed the test. So the party grew, and everyone in Munich knew of Hitler now. But they didn't know the man. That was mostly because when he was interviewed by a newspaper or magazine, he would purposefully lie to present the man he wanted the world to see. Honest, sincere, hardworking, totally devoted to Germany. His reputation was growing after all. But even so, his party was still only one of the many anti-Semitic groups declaring that Germany was betrayed and had lost its way. But what set Hitler and his party apart were his speeches. The thousands who listened to him became one body, one mind, his mind. He electrified them, but more importantly, he gave them hope. Given his past and struggles in life, 
It's not surprising that Hitler had no intention of sharing power. It brought him things that he previously had to struggle to obtain. But, at the same time, he had the uncanny ability to pick the right men to support him. He was able to see the ruthless streak in them that made them want to dominate, but, at the same time, devote themselves to him. He chose men like Hermann Goering and Julius Streicher, who joined in late 1922. Goering was a violent, ruthless man who had been a fighter pilot of the Red Baron Squadron during the war. He would prove to easily match Hitler in terms of senseless violence in the future. Stryker was a schoolteacher, but also a sadist that beat and raped his students. To see his face was to see brutality. Goering was given command of the growing stormtroopers. His job was to break up the communist rallies, protect Hitler, and parade through the streets to inspire awe and or terror. Stryker stayed in Nuremberg, started a newspaper, and made the lives of local Jews a living hell. Of course, the government in Berlin tried to limit such party activities. It passed a law limiting public events of radical extreme organizations. The right went purple with rage and reaction, and Hitler was invited to speak out against the new law. Hitler accepted their invitation, but instead of giving them a pointless diatribe against the new law, he attacked the criminal government in Berlin itself for failing to protect decent Germans from the Jews and other non-Germans. During his speech of shrieking to the heavens and whispering in a husky, exhausted voice, he called for the government to be swept away. This political triumph was followed by more haranguing of the government and flaunting the new law with violent parades. Momentum was clearly building for him and his party. Hitler now felt that his time had come. In January 1923, he asked and received permission to hold a political rally in Munich. It was a great success, but really, secretly, only a stepping stone for his next move. With his popularity rising, the National Socialists absorbed Captain Ron's Reich War Flag Party. Together they believed they were ready to march on Berlin. But to ensure success, they asked General Otto von Lasso, in charge of the local army troops, to join them. The general said yes, but then changed his mind on May 1st, and assumed that was an end to it. But the general did not know Hitler's ambition. The revolution, or putsch, would continue. However, Lasso found out and confronted the two leaders. In front of their own men, they were forced to stand down. Rom, an army officer, returned to his duties, and Hitler, chagrined, went to Berchtesgaden for a while to think about his strategy. Away from Munich, Hitler's belief in himself and his destiny was shaken. But two events would take place to restore his confidence and bring him back to his chosen course with renewed passion. On September 25, 1923, most of the right-wing military organizations met in Munich, and they asked Hitler to speak before them and their men. He did so for two and a half hours. The speech went perfectly, and at the end, they were all convinced that he was the one person to lead them to power. They pledged to put themselves and their private armies under his control. Hitler was ecstatic, but he knew even with this support, he would not be able to take on the regular army. Still, he was hoping it wouldn't come to that. The idea was, and had always been, to take Munich and then to march on Berlin. He hoped that the implied terror would be enough and be offered control of the government. This was how Mussolini, his hero, had done it, and he would follow his example. Then, a few days later, another experience lifted him out of his depression, and this honor was much more personal and in some ways a more inspiring call to destiny. Soon after his triumphant speech, he met with the remainder of the Wagner family. He had always made his respect and love of Wagner's music known, and therefore his followers did likewise. In return, the Wagner family, in a sense, worshipped him back. When they met, the family praised him and his cause to the skies. This meant more to him than all the followers possibly could. When he left the family, his belief in himself was completely returned. In fact, he was able to shrug off the feeling of being a John the Baptist, who would only herald the coming Savior, and believed once again that he was the Messiah to save Germany and its people. But nature abhors a vacuum, and while he was away from Munich, others stepped in to lead the people. The new triumvirate trying to take his place was General Commissar Gustav von Kahr, General Otto von Lasso, 
the commander of the army who had almost joined him before, and Colonel Hans Ritter von Zeiser, commandant of the Bavarian police. Normally, all these Vons would have had the respect needed to take control of the movement, but none of them could stir passions and give hope like Hitler. Moreover, these men had the backing of even more powerful conservative elements, like the clergy and revered politicians. Their usurpation seemed all but complete, albeit less flashy. When Hitler found out, he was enraged, but he knew these men could simply not be intimidated or killed. That only left the option of kidnapping them and coercing them to support his putsch. This drastic, peril-filled move was set for November 4th. But when the time came, the triumphant's bodyguards alone negated any opportunity. But then Hitler learned through his spy network that General Commissar Gustav von Kahr was going to hold a meeting at the Bürgerbrockkeller on the evening of November 8th. Further, he knew that Lasso and Seisser would be there too. Hitler, judging others by himself, assumed that Kahr was going to announce the independence of Bavaria. This would surely ruin any plan of his. So he decided that was the night to make his move. That evening of November 8, 1923, at 8 p.m., Carr was delivering not an earth-shaking speech about independence, but simply rehashing his ideas of self-sacrificing for Germany and the greater good. He was simply trying to retain his authority within the right-wing pantheon of leaders. But Hitler didn't know this. So, meeting his men outside of the beer hall at exactly 8.30 p.m., Hitler and his men stormed through the doors. His men took up their positions with machine guns, and Hitler, with a pistol in his hand, jumped up on the stage and fired two shots into the ceiling. Silence and shock followed the gun blasts. Carr sat down, indignant. Hitler addressed the crowd of 3,000. The National Revolution has begun! There was no cheers, as he expected, but only bewildered silence. Stunned, Hitler went into damage control mode. He then lied about the number of men with him, and then told everyone that the police and the army had joined his party and cause. He finished by saying the Bavarian and Reich governments had been deposed. Everyone was made to stay where they were, except the three men Hitler needed, if this was going to work. Taking them to a side room, Hitler waved his pistol at Carr, Lasso, and Seisser, while he downed a stein of beer. Slamming it down, he announced that he was the head of the new government. The men were unimpressed. But then Hitler told them that General Ludendorff, the great quartermaster of the war, would soon arrive and take his place within Hitler's new government as the leading general of the army. Now the men were impressed. He went on to say that each of them would also have a place as well. Lasso would be minister of war, Seisser, the minister of police, and Carr would have dictatorial powers in a supporting role. Lasso, the most intelligent of the three captives, whispered, Let's play out this comedy. So Seisser then asked Hitler about his promise to never again start a putsch. Hitler was thrown off by this. By now, he was used to complete obedience, and he planned out what everyone would say. This questioning of him was not in the script. He stumbled through an apology encountered with, It was for the good of the fatherland. Just then, Ludendorff came into the room. Everyone jumped up to their feet and clicked their heels. One of Hitler's assistants had fetched the war hero, who was not exactly happy about not being made the new leader. But still, he would go along. He had been supporting the National Socialists for some time now, and wanted to do his part to save Germany. So now all three men agreed to join Hitler's new government. Elated, Hitler replied that since there was a new government, there must now be an announcement. They all left the room and returned to the stage, where Hitler joyfully announced his new government and introduced his new ministers. Each man gave a short speech, and that was it. The revolution was done. Hitler told them all the National Socialists would be marching on Berlin tomorrow. Goering and his men lowered their machine guns and allowed the audience to leave in peace. But here's where everything started falling apart for Hitler and his party. This was mostly due to a surprising lack of planning on their part for the revolution after it was announced. Events had certainly moved apace, or of their own volition, as Hitler fantasized about this over and over for the last few years. But thinking something through and giving orders to make sure that they are carried out are two different things. So as they left the beer hall, almost everyone went home or somewhere to sleep, waiting for the morrow to march on Berlin. That is, 
except for the three ministers who just joined Hitler's party at gunpoint. Once outside the beer hall, Hitler had to deal with reality once again. He was informed that two nearby battalions did not throw open their arms to the National Socialists once the revolution was announced. Instead, they closed ranks and their barracks and resisted. Hitler knew of the seriousness of this and rushed to talk to them personally. But this did no good. So Hitler returned to the Bürgerbräukeller and found to his amazement that Carr, Lasso, and Seisser were gone. It seems that their word at gunpoint was no better than his. But the former captives did not go into hiding. Lasso had ordered reinforcements from surrounding towns. The leaders then announced their standing against Hitler's power move in a radio address. It was 2.55 in the morning, and most people did not hear it, but some did. Surprisingly, Hitler and his agents forgot to capture the radio station as well as the telegraph office. So while Hitler made speeches at night and swayed fence-sitters by giving them positions within his new government, the powers that still be were banning his party, their rights, and their private armies. But that was just paperwork. Now the two armies of the National Socialists had to be dealt with. Weber's, Oberlandbund, and Rom's Reich war flag military organizations were the muscle behind Hitler's words. They were already on the move that night, hoping to link up in the middle of Munich late the next morning. But Seisser of the Bavarian State Police was also busy organizing his forces to keep them apart. Hitler finished his speeches late that night and took a short nap in the early morning. When he awoke, his anxiety returned about the three key men who had fled in the night. But Ludendorff calmed him by saying they had given their word. Of course, neither one of them had any knowledge of the moves and plans made against them while they slept. At 11 a.m. that morning, it was time. Hitler, Ludendorff, their captains, and about 3,000 men left the beer hall and started marching towards the center of Munich. First, the local magistrates would be won over, or arrested, and then they would continue on to Berlin. But in another example of failed planning, about 2,000 of the rifles being carried by his men did not have firing pins. Hitler knew that Rom and his men were already on their way to meet him, so with their two standard bearers leading the way, Hitler and Ludendorff started walking. As they reached the first bridge on the way, the Ludwig Bridge, a squad of green police, not known for their mercy, stood blocking their path. But then they saw the large imposing figure of General Ludendorff, and their conviction was shaken. They lowered their rifles and were contemptuously pushed to the side. Goering soon arrested them and took them to the beer hall that was now a makeshift prison. Ludendorff never looked anywhere but straight ahead, as if the rifles and bullets meant nothing to him. Hitler, with shorter legs, did his best to keep up with the general, and Max Richter, on Hitler's other arm, did his best to keep up with him. The marchers then reached the Adenplatz near the war ministry. The police had their orders to fire on the marchers if they did not stop. They even had orders to fire on the two leaders, but could not bring themselves to do it, and as on the previous bridge, were pushed aside. By now the marchers were jubilant and singing. This was going to work. Their fear melted away, and the revolt took on a parade-like feeling. Soon they were along the Residenzstrasse, but its narrow streets forced them to walk four abreast instead of the eight as before. At the other end of the street was a line of green police, but unlike before, they were not focused on the respected and unarmed Ludendorff. They only saw the armed men behind the tall general coming at them. No one really knows who fired the first shot, but when the revolutionists were about 60 feet away from the police line, a shot rang out. The police then fired at the feet of the rebels, hoping to scare them away. However, with the bullets hitting the paved stone road, there were ricochets and stone splinters entering the masked men of the National Socialists. The police fired for about 20 seconds, but that was more than enough to break up the group behind Hitler and Ludendorff. Everyone fell to the ground while the shots rang out, then tried to crawl away or hide behind whatever could be found. Hitler was pulled to the ground as Max Richter, their arms clasped together, died instantly and fell. Hitler gasped in pain as his left shoulder smashed into the hard road and was severely dislocated. Ludendorff's valet ran out in front of the general to protect him, and half of his head was removed for his bravery. But for the most part, the men in the front rows were not hurt, because most of the damage was done by ricocheting bullets. Altogether, 
Eighteen Nationalist Socialists died, and about a hundred were wounded. But a few rebels fired back, and three green police were killed. The street was mostly cleared, except for the dead, dying, and wounded. However, there were still two men standing erect and walking unconcerned. General Ludendorff and his adjutant, Major Hans Streck. They calmly walked through the police line and then the crowds. Only then did the police respectfully ask him a few questions. Shortly thereafter, he was released and disappeared from history. His part in the National Socialist push was over. Meanwhile, Hitler had crawled away and was driven to the village of Uffing. He stayed the night in a friend's house and wrote out his probable last political statement. He left instructions for who would now be in charge and then gave into the pain of his left shoulder. On the third night, the green police came and arrested him. As they were taking him away, he screamed at them for ruining Germany's only chance of salvation. Hitler was taken to the prison at Landsberg am Lech on the night of November 11, 1923. Since the war, it had been used to hold political prisoners, of which Hitler was considered the most dangerous one. Not so much the man himself, but with the well-known tactics of his party, his escape would have wide-ranging and dangerous results for the current government in Berlin, and so a detachment of Reichswehr was sent to guard him. As the door was locked to his cell, he knew he had failed in every way possible. His party was not only in control, but banned. Men were dead, and it was his fault. But most importantly, his was a crime of treason. Only the death penalty could be his lot. As for the man himself, Hitler, still in shock and in great pain because of his left shoulder, was making it clear to everyone that his course was now suicide. He said there were too many deaths on his hands, and he could do nothing to bring them back, and therefore decided to starve himself to death. This worried the investigating judge enough to allow Hitler visitors. Soon a visitor of the name Hans Knusch came to see the fallen would-be dictator. His National Socialist Workers' Party, based in Bohemia, was much older than Hitler's, and he was respected. He told the starving inmate that yes, he had failed, but there was the future to consider, and there was no way Hitler could make a decent decision about his future without being able to think clearly, and his starvation would not allow clear thinking. Soon some rice came to his cell and was gobbled up by the starving Hitler. His body would survive, but there were questions about his mind. Hitler sunk into a great depression as winter came on. All the bad things that happened to him happened during the winter. His family members had died in winter, and he would never forget those lonely, suffering Viennese winters in the men's home. Now that the threat to Munich and Berlin was over, the Bavarian government only half-heartedly rounded up National Socialists. Eckhart, Hitler's mentor, who was a morphine addict, died right before Christmas. Hitler's spirits sank even lower. But fate or fortune wasn't finished with Adolf Hitler yet. The Minister of Justice, Franz Gertner, was sympathetic to the National Socialists. This combined with his huge ego that loved to treat desperate situations and people like so many strings and puppets, dominated the trial from behind the scenes. First, although 100 men had been arrested, he decided that only 10 would be charged. The trial started on February 16, 1924, and he had three indifferent judges appointed to the case. As the trial started, however the turnaround came about, Hitler was a force of nature in the courtroom, and with the situation when it was, he was able to interrupt anyone at any time for any length of time. It wasn't long before the judges felt like they were on trial for working for the Bavarian government, and he was their judge. Like many of his past speeches, very little of what Hitler said was logical, but with his passionate delivery and the conviction of his worldview, most in attendance believed him wholeheartedly. Soon Carr, General Lasso, and Colonel Sizer were able to give their testimony, but Hitler easily made them look as guilty as he was, if he was guilty of anything at all besides loving Germany too much. Despite his many interruptions, Hitler wasn't able to make his opening speech until ten days after the trial had started. But when he started talking and explaining what really happened, according to him, the immediate past was rewritten, and only Hitler's concern and love of the German people remained. He spoke on and off again for a month, and although he first used the defense that he was only heralding a coming man, 
He quickly took on the role of someone semi-divine. He, in fact, was the Savior. His version of the events were predictably very different from Lasso's, but he wasn't giving testimony. He was swaying a crowd, and he was very good at that. On March 27, 1924, he spoke again and knew that this would be the last time to do so before a verdict was given. He spoke at length, and it can honestly be said that he held the court spellbound. He was Germany's only hope. He did not need the title of dictator or chancellor. What did that matter? His only cause was to save Germany. He would lead Germany, and he would destroy Marxism. His defense was not rational, because he was guilty of what he was being accused of. Instead, he attacked those who were holding Germany back from greatness, or from being safe only for Germans. He ended with, I know your verdict of me, but even if you judge us guilty a thousand times over, the goddess of eternal justice will smile, tear to tatters the verdict of this court, for she will acquit us. But in the end, he was found guilty and received a five-year term, of which he served only nine months. But even his sentencing was not impartial. Minister of Justice Franz Gertner never stopped working behind the scenes to support the leader of the National Socialists. The other accused men received lesser sentences, but the real victim of all this, besides the dead and wounded, was his political party. The National Socialists were banned and all possessions confiscated. Hitler, however, because of the trial, was able to crawl out from under Ludendorff's shadow and become a national figure. Moreover, he was now the party. To briefly describe his time in jail, the rules did not apply to him. He was a folk hero who received gifts daily. He had a waiter, a secretary, and extra rooms provided to him. The warden did not dare try to intervene. He returned to writing his autobiography, but with all that had happened, it served the purpose of explaining not his actions, but his destiny. He was released on December 20th, 1924, at 10 a.m. When he got back to his apartment, he reviewed his situation. His party was in ruins, but he made sure, even while in prison, that no one usurped his position of leadership. He was under oath to not attempt another putsch, had no money, no party newspaper, the stormtroopers were disbanded, and none of them were allowed to fly the swastika. But he had his name, and by now almost everyone knew it. He would rebuild his party and seize power legally, for the most part. Now in the chancellery, he would put into practice all those ideas laid bare in Mein Kampf. Next time, we will return to the summer of 1940. France was out, Italy has joined Hitler's war, and the U.S. was still neutral. The people of Great Britain stood alone. Greetings from Central Virginia. Well, it's been a very interesting month with my computer crashing, but I've said it before, and I'll say it again. No matter how many technical difficulties I have, I will always come back. Because, honestly, I'm having too much fun, and I've met a lot of amazing people through this. Uh, emails and Skype and stuff like that. So I'm definitely keep going to keep going. Um, I'd like to take a minute and thank everyone who's written, asking about... Um, me and about the website if I was coming back. Um, a lot of uh, encouragement and people were very excited to have it back and I am too. Um, so thank you for that for that encouragement. Also, I'd like to thank the people who donated recently. Um, if I missed anybody, I apologize. But like I said, the last month has been very uh, confusing and hectic. First of all, I'd like to thank Thomas from Texas, Robert from Central Virginia, actually right around the corner from me, Adam from Canada, William from Wiltshire, Wiltshire, uh, UK, Andrew from Northumberland, UK, David from Ontario, Canada, Hugh from Buckinghamshire, a Buckinghamshire from UK, Glenn from New Zealand, and Yogev, Yagev from Israel. Um, but I think I've found a very good, positive way to end this episode, and I'm working on the Battle of Britain. I know you've been waiting for it. I've been waiting for it too. I have like 15 different books I'm going to. I'm going to try and make this as good as the Dunkirk. Uh, was. I'm really working on that. I'm very excited. But I found a way to really end this and to have you forgive me. I have been working with the company for the last couple of months and I couldn't say anything about it. But I can now because it's pretty much done. Um, there's going to be a World War II tour next year. Um, I've put together some sites that pretty much define the war in Western Europe. 
Um, and so the details aren't out yet. The website's not out yet, but it will be out in a couple of days. Um, but bear with me as soon as it's out, I'll do a quick uh, announcement on iTunes in case I don't have a, an episode ready. I'll also Twitter and do it on uh, Facebook. If you have any questions until then, until I can get the announcement and the website out and everything going, um, the email address is info at historyworldtravel.com. Um, so pretty soon we'll have the itinerary, the prices, the times, everything out. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I just think it's going to be a blast, and I can't wait to meet a lot of you, uh, hopefully who will be coming. And, of course, there will be a link um, for my website, worldwar2podcast.net, to, to that site once it's up and um, running so you can find out all about it. So if you forgive me, come with me next year. We'll go to uh, Western Europe. We'll check out a lot of the sites. And if you want, you can take that opportunity to ask me what in the heck is wrong with me. Why can't I get my website to work? But I will be making this switch to WordPress sometime in the future. So hopefully this will never happen again. But anyway, um, it's going to be a blast next year. Um, I will promise you, I promise you, I will get the information to you just as soon as I have it in the detail. And so until then, um, happy Thanksgiving. Everybody, please be safe. Take care. And I will see you with the Battle of Britain Part 1, as soon as humanly possible. Thank you.